So this was just before Jesus was uh, crucified. And during that last week, there was a great confrontation in Jerusalem between Jesus and the established religious leaders of the day, the, the priests and the Bible scholars uh, in Jerusalem. And on Sunday of that week, the first Sunday of that week, there was an event that we celebrate as Palm Sunday. And what happened on that day was Jesus uh, entered the city. Oh, this was during the time of the Passover festival. So there's lots and lots of people are traveling to Jerusalem at this time. They're all coming to, to the city to celebrate the, the festival of the Passover. And, uh, and on that day, that Sunday before Passover, Jesus rode in through the gates of the walled city of Jerusalem with a great procession of people riding in on a donkey. And the people, especially those people who had been traveling with Jesus and listening to him teach as they were approaching Jerusalem, they were um, celebrating his entry into the city as if he were a king returning to his capital city. And they laid their coats and they laid palm branches in the road for his donkey to step on. That seems like kind of a strange thing to do to me, to put your coat on the ground for somebody to ride a horse across. But anyway, they were doing that in order to honor Jesus and to, uh, to celebrate Jesus as he came into the holy city and to the temple of God. And uh, by honoring this young new leader in this way, they were really challenging the leadership of the established priests and the, the people who had the positions of authority in their religion. And the procession headed straight for the temple. The Bible says that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then uh, he's, after he throws those guys out, he himself settles into the temple courtyard with all these people that have came in with him. And he starts teaching them. And then the Bible says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, that's the, the miracles of healing, and, and, that, and, and they heard the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were not happy. They were not celebrating. They were indignant at what was happening around them. And they said, do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise? Jesus is not exactly defusing the situation here, is he? There is no more avoiding the conflict. For years, Jesus had... had uh, had left and, and gone to other areas and had avoided a direct confrontation with these leaders, but now the time had come. And he is directly challenging the priests and the Bible teachers, and he is saying, who is it that speaks for God? Who is it who is worthy to lead the people of God? And at this point, uh, the Bible says Jesus leaves the city, goes and stays in a nearby village for the night, comes back the next day, back to the temple again, and starts teaching. And Matthew records three parables that he taught at that time. And uh, each of those parables uh, condemns the religious leaders who were opposing him. And, uh, and after the first two of those parables, the Bible tells us, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, 
they knew he was talking about them. So what did, how did they respond? Were they convicted? Did they repent? No, he knew that, they knew that he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, if you've got some time this afternoon, I, I think it'd be great to go into Matthew chapter 21, read those first couple of parables that he sold on this day, and, uh, and see what, what they have to teach us as well. Uh, but at this point, um, there was a, a great divide between the priests and the religious leaders on the one side and the, the crowds of people on the other side. The priests and the leaders were in opposition to Jesus, wanted to arrest him. But the majority of the people were on the other side feeling like, no, this man is speaking for God. He is a prophet. And now we come to the third parable in which we'll be focusing our, uh, our attention this morning. And it's a kingdom parable. It teaches us truths about God's rule. And here it is. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 1. And uh, here's what it says. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, we've, we've mentioned a few times in this series on parables that the parables are sometimes pretty difficult to understand and pretty difficult to, uh, to really get what Jesus is, is, uh, is driving at in these parables. In fact, that was part of the reason why Jesus used the parables. He wanted the people that were willing to put in the work to figure it out, to understand what he was saying. And if people were uninterested, uh, Jesus was ready to leave them in their ignorance if they weren't willing to put in the effort to, to discover it. And, uh, and here we have one of these parables that on a first reading, you look at this story and you think, what in the world is going on here? Um, but by putting in a little effort and, uh, and uh, thinking about it a little and, and interpreting some of these symbols, I think we can really learn some great things from this, this parable if we just um, show the spiritual initiative to, uh, 
to work at it a little bit. Um, also, this parable is one of those that's tempting to uh, get distracted by trying to understand the meaning of every little detail of the story and trying to interpret every little thing. But that's generally not how parables work. Parables, uh, the main ideas of the parables, the main things they're trying to teach are the main points of the story, not the details. And so it's by looking at the, the big plot line and the big story of the parable that we will find the main things that Jesus is trying to teach. So the first big idea that we see in this parable that's pretty clear, really, is that the king in the story is inviting people to the feast, right? And that part of the symbolism is really not very hard to understand. The king, um, as in many of uh, Jesus' parables, is telling us something about God. He's illustrating some things about God himself. And the symbol of the feast is also a very common one in the Bible to describe God's salvation, to describe the reward that God has for his people. And so Jesus is telling us, uh, by telling us a story of a king inviting people to a feast, Jesus is saying, God is inviting people to salvation. Uh, people are not coming to the king in this story saying, hey, I heard there's a feast, can I get in? Uh, God is taking the initiative. God is sending out the invitation, and he is seeking people to come to his feast. He is looking for people and inviting them to be saved. The story emphasizes that point by showing the king as sending out his servants three different times. When the initial uh, invitation is refused, the king doesn't just give up on those people. He sends another invitation, a, a more persuasive invitation that tells a little more and, uh, and tries to, to get them to uh, respond and persuade the people to be saved. And when they reject that a, a second time, he sends servants out a third time and invites everyone that they can find to come in to the feast. You see, the king in this story is determined that people will attend the feast. So what does that tell us about God? Jesus is telling us that God wants people to be saved. God wants the gospel preached. He wants people to accept His invitation. He is a gracious and merciful God. He sends out His servants, and that's us, with the invitation to tell people about His salvation and invite them to come. And He is persistent in His invitations. However, there is a second big lesson about God in the actions of the king in this story. In the story, He doesn't only invite people to the feast, He also judges those who refuse His invitation. It's clear in the story that people are not free to just ignore or reject the invitation of the king at their own, their own choice. This is not a case of, I'm having a feast, you can come if you want, but if you're not, that's okay, that's okay too. That's not God's attitude. It's not an invitation that people are free to either accept or reject. Rejection of the invitation has serious consequences. There is a limit to the king's patience. When those who were initially invited uh, 
have rejected his invitation a second time, he sends his army to destroy them. And then at the end of the story, we see that he throws out the guy without wedding clothes into the darkness. See, God wants people to be saved, but he is not a soft, weak God just begging for people to come to him that we can take advantage of. God is a powerful king whose will must not be ignored. He is a God of love, but he is also a God of judgment. He is patient with us, but a day of reckoning will come when God will punish those who have rejected his offer of salvation. The other main characters in this parable, aside from the king, are the people that the king invites to the feast. And the people who are first invited and asked to come twice and reject the offer both times. And then the king opens up his invitation to everyone that the servants can find. And the story emphasizes that, that the people that are, uh, that are invited that third time are just people that they found along the road, out on the highways and byways, whoever they could find. It even uh, says that they were both good people and bad people are invited into the feast. And that second group then responds to the invitation. So this is where Jesus is again confronting and challenging the religious leaders of his day. Because those who were first invited are the people who should have been the first to recognize uh, Jesus as the Messiah, recognize the offer of salvation, and should have come to him immediately. Their knowledge of the Bible and the prophecies should have helped them to see who Jesus was and accept the things that, the, that he taught. But the priests and the spiritual elites rejected Jesus. But at the same time, many of the common people, and even very sinful people, the Bible is clear that it was the, the kind of outsiders, the, the, the people who had no spiritual interest, those were people that responded to Jesus. And so that's, uh, you know, again, that, that is a challenge to those leaders. Why are you the last to respond? Are you going to be as, as, uh, as stubborn as the people in the story? This week, as I was uh, studying the reactions of the people who were invited, I realized that this part of the story is really pretty similar to a parable that we studied a few weeks back, the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils and this parable uh, discuss four different ways that people respond to the gospel message, four ways that people respond to the invitation. Um, The first group is those uh, who simply ignore the invitation. They're just uninterested in the feast. Verse 5 tells us that they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. And these people from the story represent a lot of people in real life, don't they? So many people just don't have any interest in the things of God. They hear the gospel message, they hear about church, and they just don't care. Their priorities instead are on the things of this world. 
In the story, it's a field or a business that, that they uh, are interested in, but, uh, but they, just, they just shrug and go about their way. And uh, God is patient, patient with those people. He sends us, his servants, to try to persuade them to come into the feast. But there will be an end to their chances, but God wants those people to be saved. Now, the second response that we see in the story are are those people who respond to the invitation with anger and violence, mistreating and even killing the messengers, which seems, in the story, it seems kind of out of place that they would respond so strongly. But when we think about what is it that Jesus is illustrating by this story, um, yeah, there are people who respond very, uh, with, with great hostility to the offer of the gospel. Um, they find the invitation offensive, not just boring. Um, there's a number of reasons why people have strong reactions against the gospel message, but I think that there's really two primary ones, two big reasons why people really uh, oppose the gospel. One is uh, that people who are committed to another religion or to another philosophy or way of thinking, they are often offended by the idea that the Jesus of Christianity is the only way for them to be saved. When we teach that the Bible is true and all other religions are false, a lot of people don't like to be told that they are wrong. And so they respond with hostility. Here's another thing, though, is that I expect that some of you who are here and are Christians are somewhat uncomfortable with that idea yourselves. Uh, Should we be going out and telling people who believe in Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism, should we be going to those people and telling them they're wrong? Isn't that offensive for us to to do that? Um, but, But here's the thing. If you see somebody who's trusting their life to something that is not trustworthy, is it wrong of us to warn them? For example, if you see somebody who's heading out on a grizzly bear hunt with a BB gun, wouldn't it be a good thing for you to warn them and say, hey, uh, I think maybe the BB gun isn't going to do the job, and in fact, you're probably going to end up as a grizzly snack. Um, We need to warn people who are trusting in their false religions that they are heading for eternal disaster. Of course, this has to be done in a way that avoids unnecessary offense. Uh, We should do our best to warn people in a way that will cause them to respond positively and not with anger. But it is good and right for us to warn them. But no matter how we do it, many will reject the king's invitation since they already feel that they're doing fine with their own beliefs. Now, there's other people who might consider themselves Christians uh, who are also offended by the gospel, not because they reject Jesus and the, the idea of Christianity, but because of the biblical teaching about their own sinfulness. They are offended by the idea that they are hopeless sinners who deserve punishment and can never do enough good to escape it. They want to believe that they're basically good people. And so the gospel message that works will never save anyone, and it is only through 
Jesus' payment for our sins that we can ever hope to pass the final judgment, that's an offensive doctrine. And so there are people who, they're not trusting in another religion to save them from their sins. They simply don't believe that they need anyone or anything to save them because their sins really aren't that bad. And God really only sends really evil people like serial killers and Nazis to hell. But these people are also hunting grizzly bears with BB guns. <laughs> and they too need to be warned that uh, the religion that they are following is not the biblical gospel. It's a false distortion of Christianity and it will result in condemnation at the final judgment. Should we worry that they might be offended and angry when we point out their sin and their need for repentance and forgiveness? Yes, we should worry about that. We should worry that they might be offended. And, and, and so that worry should cause us to speak to them in ways that are most likely to re lead to repentance rather than anger. But it is good and right for the king's servants to invite people to the feast. And we need to be telling people about the good news of Jesus and encouraging them to accept salvation. There's a third response that we see to the king's invitation in this parable. And it's illustrated by the guy who accepts the invitation, shows up for the feast, but is improperly dressed for the occasion. Um, when he is discovered by the king, he is bound hand and foot and cast out into darkness. What in the world is going on in this part of the story? <laughs> what is this about? Um, what is Jesus trying to, to teach us here? Well, I th this guy, he represents people who come to Jesus. Maybe they become part of a church. Maybe they take part in the Lord's Supper like we're going to do in a few minutes here. Maybe they buy a nice leather-bound Bible and they, uh, they put some money in the offering. They do a lot of the stuff that you do when you're a Christian. But deep down, they are coming to God on their own terms and in their own way and not coming to God on His terms and in His way. And let me tell you a story from the Bible that illustrates what I'm talking about here. This story is about a guy named King Jeroboam. Now, I know what you're all thinking. You're all wondering, are you talking about King Jeroboam the first who ruled in the 8th, 10th century B.C. or Jeroboam the second? who ruled in the 8th century, right? It's the first guy, Jeroboam the first. So Jeroboam the first, um, his story is in 1 Kings chapter 12 through 14. And here's what happened. Jeroboam was the very first king over the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, this was right after the division of Israel into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the new nation of Judah was the southern part of what had been the nation of Israel, and uh, Israel was what used to be just the northern part of Israel. And Jerusalem, which had been the capital city where they had all, when they had all been one country, and it was the home of the temple of God, um, that was in the south, in Judah. And the ruler of the south was King Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, who was the grandson of the great King David. But our story is about Jeroboam, who was the ruler of the north at this time. And he had established a new capital city for himself there, but he had a problem. Because all the Israelites, both in the north and the south, their devotion for God 
was extremely important to them. And a big part of that devotion involved making trips to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to, uh, to visit the, the temple for the festival. And uh, this was a problem for, for Jeroboam because he did not want his people traveling back down to the capital city of the king that he had just successfully rebelled against. He was afraid that before long, people would start to wonder why they were no longer being ruled by the king in Jerusalem. And they would return to that king, the son of Solomon, grandson of David, the two greatest kings in their history. And in order to avoid this, Jeroboam came up with a plan. He would tell his people that they didn't have to worship God according to the ways that God had instructed their ancestors through Moses. They could come to God and follow him in a new way that Jeroboam himself had invented. So he started by setting up two new altars. Instead of having to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices at the altar there in the temple as God had instructed, no, we can have our own altars. He set up one in a city near his southern border and one in the northern region of Israel. And uh, since he didn't have an elaborate temple like the one in Jerusalem, he decided to do what everybody else those days did and make some golden idols. So he set up a golden calf, one in the south and one in the north, and said to the people, here it is. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And, uh, and those idols were supposed to represent God and were there at the altar where he wanted the sacrifices to be. Then Jeroboam appointed his own priests. God had told Moses that all priests must come from the tribe of Levi. But Jeroboam chose priests from whatever tribe he wanted to choose. Next, he came up with his own festival to replace the ones that God had told the people to celebrate. So how do you think that God felt about this? Jeroboam wasn't telling people to abandon God and to worship Molech or Ashtoreth or one of the other gods that all the people around them were worshiping. He was saying, no, 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 we're going to continue worshiping our God. This is the God, of, the God who brought us up out of Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to worship him. He just wanted them to come to God in a different way. Were his changes to the way that God had instructed his people to come to him really all that important? Yes, they were important. And God was very angry with Jeroboam, and he sent prophets to condemn what he was doing. The very first time that Jeroboam went to offer sacrifices on his new altar, a prophet came and had a very dramatic confrontation with the king. You can read about it in 1 Kings 13. Um, it's a great story. But uh, then the rest of the books of First and Second Kings, which tells the whole story of all the kings of Israel for several hundred years, um, every single king of the northern kingdom of Israel is given a spiritual evaluation. And every one of them is given a version of this statement. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. So this guy, Jeroboam, became the standard of sin, the model for all other sinful kings throughout the history of the nation. 
Even a hundred years later, when a king came along who did some good things for Israel, it says, So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. So by telling people that they could come to God in a way that was different from the way that God had instructed his people to worship him and how he had instructed people to seek forgiveness for their sins, Jeroboam had sinned and led his people into sin. You see, God gives us specific ways that we must come to him for salvation, and we are not free to ignore his instructions and choose our own way. That was the problem with Jeroboam, and it is the problem with the guy who wasn't dressed properly for the wedding. It's clear in the story that the king had expectations that his guests would be properly attired for the wedding, and this man chose to ignore the king's expectations. And he represents people like Jeroboam who come to God ignoring what God has revealed and taught us about salvation and forgiveness, or at least ignoring the parts of it that that they don't like, and creating their own customized version of religion. I'll just take the parts that I like, and I'll leave off the parts I don't like, and I'll do things differently if I want to. How many people do that today? There is some reason why they don't want to follow the teachings of the Bible. For Jeroboam, it was a political reason. He just didn't want people going to Jerusalem because he was afraid for his position. For other people, it might be that some element of biblical teaching is just too old-fashioned. It doesn't fit with our modern way of seeing the world. Or maybe we just don't want to admit that certain behaviors are sinful. Or whatever the reason is, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, and just like Jeroboam would have said, he was a true worshiper of the God of Israel, but they are unwilling to submit fully to God. They're unwilling to do things God's way. They want to come to God on their own terms, accepting most of what the Bible teaches, but feeling free to make modifications whenever it suits them. Are there non-essential areas of our Christian practice that we have freedom to disagree with one another and make choices about? Of course. What kind of music we're going to use in the worship or what, you know, where we're going to have our services or, or what, uh, how we're going to dress for church or which Bible translation we prefer, even some of the doctrinal issues. We can agree to disagree on some things and, and, and that's okay. But there are essential parts of Christian belief and Christian practice that are not optional. When things are clearly taught by God in His Word, we do not have the option to choose not to obey. This parable is primarily a parable of warning. It's a warning that the gospel invitation cannot be safely ignored or rejected, and the The story also warns us that if we accept the invitation to come to Jesus for salvation, we must do it and come to Him in the way that God has shown us and on God's terms, not on our own terms and not in our own way. But the parable is not only warnings. I want to finish this morning with 
with the, the, the fourth response. There was a fourth group of people. And, uh, and, and there's a beautiful truth here that God is calling people to salvation. And He's not only calling the best, most religious people who are the, the, the Bible scholars and all these things. He is calling the masses, both the good and the bad, to come to Him for salvation. And we are all given the chance to respond to the gospel and to be part of the feast of the King. And despite those who reject, the feast will be full of people who do accept the gospel, come to God for healing from their sins, and are eternally saved to spend forever in paradise with God.